Greetings, boys and ghouls. It is I, the Crypt Keeper, welcoming you back to another episode of Murder and Mayhem that we like to call Space Mummies from Planet X. Just kidding. It's actually Devin. Had you fooled for a second, didn't I? Yeah. Man, do you remember the Crypt Keeper? Boy, the 90s were weird. I can't believe that that was actually a show. Um, anyway, I hope you're enjoying Spooky Season. I know I am. I love the whole fall Halloween aesthetic way more than the other seasons, and for me, October always means watching horror movies. This isn't the first horror podcast that we've done so far, and I think I've explained in the past that I just love the horror genre. If we're going to get super analytical about it, I think it's because by nature I'm an anxious person, and horror gives you a safe outlet to feel tense or scared and take control of those feelings. However, most horror movies suck. They either don't commit to a single concept, they frequently recycle old ideas to death, which is certainly the case of like a franchise film, or maybe they get weird personal direction from whoever is directing or producing it that just overcomplicates the plot. Maybe the film has a low budget, or cheesy or fake acting. It could be a number of things. Regardless, I still love watching them anyway. Even the bad ones, because you can at least laugh at them, usually. So anyway... I've been watching a bunch of horror films recently, mostly from the Halloween franchise in preparation for today's episode, but also I started the recent remake of Hellraiser on Hulu. I'm only like 20 minutes in, but so far I'm liking it. I'll definitely have more to say on it next episode once I've had a chance to watch the rest of the thing. I've also been hearing really good things about the movie Smile, which initially I was intending to just write off. I was going to see it, but it looked to me like, oh, it's another... I don't know, The the Grudge, something like that. But I've been hearing good things about that movie that's really scary. I, so I definitely want to go see that one. Moving away from horror for just a second, I've also been watching just a ton of anime. The fall anime season has just started, which means new series and seasons for a number of shows. For instance, Bleach is back. The long-awaited Thousand Year War blood arc is upon us. It's the final arc of the story. Uh, The Bleach anime originally ended all the way back in 2012 without adapting the final bit of story from the manga. And here we are now, like 10 years later, finally finishing the thing off. So far, it's only one episode in, but what I've seen, I'm liking a lot. It's just great to be back in the world of Bleach. I really missed that show. I also watched the first episode of Chainsaw Man, which is about a man that gets possessed by a demon and has chainsaws coming out of his arms and face that fights other demons. It's pretty cool. I know the manga is very popular, so I'm excited to see where it goes. I'm not very well acquainted firsthand with that one. I also just recently binge-watched the show Mob Psycho 100, and I cannot recommend it highly enough. The third season just started. The show, if you're completely unfamiliar, is adapted from a manga by One, the same guy that made the anime One Punch Man, or the manga One Punch Man that the anime is adapted from. It's about a middle schooler with immense psychic powers that has to suppress his emotions in order to control that power, and how he learns to make friends and improve his life in other ways while also working part-time for a con artist to exercise evil spirits. It's a comedy, and a really charming one at that. The episodes tend to start out episodic uh, in nature, story-wise, towards the beginning of the season, and then towards the end of the season, things start to get more serious as the main character Shigeo and his friends find themselves under attack by a sinister organization of evil psychics. 
Throughout, though, the humor and heart is always there. It's such an enjoyable show. I really, really love it. Anyway, that's your anime roundup for this episode. (laughs) Uh, Let's return to the main subject at hand. Horror movies. Specifically, the Halloween franchise. There are a lot of movies that focus on a masked killer that stalks his victims with a knife of some kind. Take Jason Voorhees or Freddy Krueger with his slasher glove. Ghostface in the Scream movies. It's a pretty common trope. Arguably, though, nobody does the mask-stabbing thing better than the OG Michael Myers. I'll explain why as we explore the convoluted timeline of the Halloween franchise that culminates in the latest, and final, question mark, film, Halloween Ends. Maybe the only way he can die is if I die too. It all ends now. First, though, let's talk about director John Carpenter. The Halloween franchise is his baby. Although he only directed the first movie way back in 1978, he was the executive producer on the next two films, along with the current trilogy of movies he started off in overseeing the first one that started back in 2018, which is to say nothing of his iconic theme music that is instantly identifiable with the series. But I'm getting ahead of myself a bit. First, let me give you a little background on the man himself and what led up to the creation of the first Halloween movie. Hopefully you're already familiar with who Carpenter is, because he really is a legend. He's recognized as a master of the horror genre, although he's directed some famous sci-fi and action films as well. These include Halloween, obviously, The Fog, Escape from New York, Assault on Precinct 13, The Thing, They Live, Escape from L.A., and many more. He was born January 16, 1948. Interested in film from an early age, he was particularly into westerns and low-budget sci-fi films from the 50s. He started filming his own horror shorts on 8mm before he even started high school. His father was a music professor and chaired the music department at Western Kentucky University, where John initially attended college before transferring to USC Cinematic Arts in 1968. Eventually, he dropped out altogether to make his first feature film. That film was Dark Star in 1974, which was a sci-fi comedy about the deterioration of a spaceship crew uh, on a mission to destroy unstable planets. It was a low-budget film and wasn't particularly successful, but it went on to gain a cult following, as a number of his films did early on. Carpenter also scored the film, and if you know Carpenter, you know him as a director And even if you don't know it, he's also a masterful um, musician. Uh, His his music is really iconic. In 1976, he directed Assault on Precinct 13, which was an exploitation film about an officer rallying the skeleton crew of a police station to defend it against repeated attacks by a violent street gang. It pushed the envelope in some respects with regards to some of the violent content, and although it too was not a commercial success, It ended up gaining a cult following, and critics have praised it as being one of the best action films of its era. His next film, though, was his first major box office success, and launched the franchise we're discussing in this episode. I'm talking, of course, about the movie Halloween from 1978. I'll get into the details of that first movie in a second, but I wanted to give an overview of what the Halloween movies even are. So, Halloween is a series about a masked serial killer, Michael Myers, who's hell-bent on killing his last surviving relative after murdering his older sister as a child. At least that's what most of them are about. More on that later. 
It's a convoluted franchise with more reboots, branching timelines, and dead ends than pretty much any other long-running movie series that I can think of. The first movie helped establish the slasher genre of horror movies. The genre is said to have begun with the Italian giallo films, along with movies like Hitchcock's Psycho in 1960. Other notable films that predated it include The Texas Chainsaw Massacre in 1974 and Black Christmas, also from 1974. Uh, These came out prior to the release of Halloween in 1978, and Halloween kicked off the golden age of slasher films. So following the release of Assault on Precinct 13 in 1976, the independent film producer Erwin Yablins sought out Carpenter with an idea for a horror movie with the same level of cultural impact as The Exorcist. The concept that he had in mind was one about a psychotic killer that stalked and murdered babysitters. Yablins approached Carpenter with a pitch, and Carpenter agreed to make the film as long as he was allowed full creative control, which he got. Carpenter would then go on to write, direct, and score the film, all for a measly $10,000. It starred Jamie Lee Curtis in her film debut, and a number of actors had their film debut in this series. Um, It also starred Donald Pleasance, PJ Souls, and Nancy Keys. The movie was filmed entirely in Southern California over the course of 20 days in the spring of 1978, and released in October of the same year, which is quite a turnaround. So, the movie begins with a backstory for antagonist boogeyman Michael Myers. As a child on Halloween night in 1968, he murdered his older sister with a knife before being institutionalized for 10 years. On Halloween in 1978, he escapes and then returns to his hometown of Haddonfield, Illinois, leaving a trail of carnage and destruction in his wake. Myers steals a mask, a butcher knife, and starts stalking the streets of Haddonfield, looking for victims. As night falls, he starts murdering teenagers, which culminates in an attempt to murder babysitter Lori Strode, who tries everything she can think of to survive the assault, until Myers' psychiatrist Samuel Loomis catches up to him and shoots him six times in the chest with a handgun. Myers then plummets from a second-story window, and then is later discovered to have vanished into the night. So Halloween didn't necessarily pioneer every single element of the slasher film, although it did popularize a lot of them. For instance, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre had a masked killer four years before Halloween. A popular interpretation of Halloween is that it explores uh, and links the idea of sexuality with danger. This would come up time and again with slasher films. As all of the murdered teens in the film had or were about to engage in sexual activity at the time of their deaths. Only the sexually chaste character, Lori, is able to survive the night. This introduced, by the way, the entire notion of the final girl that would return again and again in future slasher movies like Friday the 13th and Scream. There's also this whole intimacy of stabbing, penetrating someone to death with a knife. You get the picture. In this type of analysis, Michael is thought to represent repressed sexual frustration. The movie also portrays the dark side of suburban living and the hollow safety it represents. Halloween was widely influential in the horror genre, credited for starting the new wave of slasher films in the 1980s like A Nightmare on Elm Street and Friday the 13th. As I mentioned, it helped popularize the final girl trope along with other elements like absentee parents and the killer having its own theme or music cue. The film was a commercial success, but critical reception was pretty muddled at first. As the years went on, though, that situation completely reversed itself and critics recognized how well shot and tense Halloween was. 
If you can believe it, it currently has a 96% on Rotten Tomatoes, to give you an idea of how it's regarded now. So, in the early 1980s, following the success of Halloween, Carpenter and co-writer Deborah Hill were approached to write the script for a sequel. The first movie was originally conceived of as a standalone movie, and sequels to horror films at the time weren't a common thing. So, they originally planned on setting the sequel a few years later, and would have Michael tracking down Laurie Strode to her new apartment in a high-rise building. But during script-writing meetings, that decision was shot down, and the decision was made to have the sequel take place immediately following the events of Halloween on the same night, and would center around Michael tracking Laurie to a hospital where she was taken following the injuries she sustained in the first movie. It also ended up introducing this twist of Laurie being Michael's younger sister, something that went on to become a foundational tie for most of the franchise, with the exception of the recent trilogy. It's also something Carpenter almost immediately regretted adding to the story, but according to him, at the time he was struggling to find something interesting to bring out of the story, and it was basically the first thing he came up with. So like I said, the plot picks up immediately after the first movie, with Laurie transported to Haddonfield Hospital and Michael prowling the back alleys of Haddonfield, killing random citizens and eventually discovering where they ended up taking Laurie. The police try to cordon off the streets to catch Myers, but they end up letting their guard down after a random person in the mask and an outfit similar to Myers is killed. Dr. Loomis, predictably, runs around waving his handgun, demanding that the cops take things seriously, while Michael arrives at the hospital and starts killing the skeleton crew of staff uh, on duty there. Lori is badly injured and defenseless, but barely manages to crawl to safety and avoid Michael while Dr. Loomis learns that Lori is secretly Michael's younger sister. She was later adopted and the records were sealed. Loomis hijacks a marshal's vehicle and forces the marshal to take them to a hospital, sensing that Lori may be in danger, which she is, of course. The marshal is killed, Lori manages to lure Michael down to the basement where she and Loomis succeed in filling the entire area with flammable gas, and then Loomis pushes Lori out of the room to safety and ignites the lighter, which incinerates both himself and Myers. So, this was intended to be the end of the whole Michael Myers thing. Um... Halloween 2 was bloodier than the first film. Carpenter didn't film it. He was only the producer and writer, but he ended up refilming a number of the death scenes himself to up the gore factor in post-production. Rick Rosenthal, the film's actual director, speculates that this decision was made to bring the movie in line with the level of gore in similar slasher films at the time, as like gore inflation. It attempted to add depth to the relationship between Michael and Laurie, as I said, and it was also the first of the Halloween movies to start portraying Myers as something akin to a force of nature rather than a man. Not only does he sustain more physical damage in Halloween 2, but his overall body count in the films shoots up to nine people, almost double the amount of kills in the first film. For a horror movie sequel at the time, it did a lot of things right. It respected the first movie and established a continuity between both films. It attempted to give a resolution to the story, which would be undone by future installments. It didn't attempt to over-explain too much about Michael, and again, we hit upon a recurring theme across these various podcasts. Over-explanation runs counter to good storytelling. It happens time and again. Luckily, this movie didn't do that, although the series degrades to that point later on. There were some exceptions to this in the movie, though. Uh, Michael, for instance, leaves a message behind in a wall that refers to Sam Hain, which Loomis explains refers to a pagan festival surrounding Halloween. 
It's a concept that was discussed by Carpenter while writing the first movie, but never explicitly referred to. And in my opinion, the idea that Michael is running around killing people and then stops to write some cryptic pagan shit on a wall is just goofy. I also think that the family link between Michael and Laurie isn't necessary. I tend to agree with the analysis of the first film that argue it's much scarier for Michael to become fixated on killing her by just a complete freak chance encounter rather than some drive to hunt down a surviving relative. The fact that Laurie is weak in dealing with the wounds that were sustained in part one also adds to a lot of tense sequences where you really feel the hopelessness of her situation. She doesn't even have the strength to run away. She has to crawl most of the time. I also like the first-person sequences in the beginning where Michael roams the backyards and streets of Haddonfield. Something about the voyeurism involved in seeing the victims from his point of view is especially disquieting. So, that wasn't the end, obviously. Although, it was the end for a second of Michael Myers being involved in the Halloween series. So, a year after Halloween 2, they put out a movie called Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, which was the first and only Halloween movie that had nothing to do with Michael Myers, wasn't in the film. Carpenter and Hill, uh, by this point, were just over the whole Myers thing and envisioned turning the Halloween franchise into an anthology series that would feature different stories all relating to the holiday. Uh, They tapped Tommy Lee Wallace to write and direct while Carpenter and Hill produced. Depending on who you ask, it was a complete misfire. The movie is about an evil mask manufacturer who distributes Halloween masks that all have a secret chip designed to kill the person wearing it when worn viewing a program broadcast on TV. Cochrane, the mask maker, also has an army of human robots who run around killing people that threaten this plan, which in turn ends up attracting the attention of a carousing doctor, Daniel Chalice, along with the surviving daughter of one of Cochrane's victims. The two then follow the mask connection back to the company town where Cochrane's uh, factory, the Silver Shamrock, creates these masks, and eventually learns about Cochrane's plot to air a TV special that will activate the masks across the country, killing the children wearing them as an offering to the pagan ritual of sacrifice during the festival of Samhain. It's just an overstuffed, weird movie that's not remotely scary. Predictably, the reaction was less than positive. Critics didn't like it, fans weren't happy, I think it has a 47% on Rotten Tomatoes, although, depending on which critic you talk to nowadays, it grew to be more appreciated over time. Trust me, after having just binged all of these movies and seeing this one, it's weird. It's not, it doesn't really fit, it kind of deserves the whatever reception that it got at the time. Um, the one thing that it does have going for it, though, uh, if you like to have just a weird audio brainworm, is the Silver Shamrock theme song. Happy, happy Halloween, 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 happy, happy Halloween, Silver Shamrock. Happy, happy Halloween, 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 happy, happy Halloween, Silver Shamrock. Yeah, so that's played throughout the movie multiple, multiple times until it just drives you insane. So enjoy that one. Several years later, executive producer Mustafa Akkad wanted to continue the Halloween franchise and then insisted that the next movie goes back to the drawing board, back to basics, and features Michael Myers in an attempt to rekindle the magic of the first two films. Initially, Carpenter and Hill were involved, but they left the project pretty quickly. The movie was the first in a trilogy 
that would then focus on the orphan daughter of Laurie Strode, uh, Jamie Lloyd. Jamie Lee Curtis didn't return, so they just kind of wrote her out as having died in a car crash. The movies also doubled down, unfortunately, in my opinion, even more on the concept that Michael was supernatural and unkillable, an avatar of a pagan entity, Thorn, who kills as a means of sacrifice for the greater good, or something. They diluted and rehashed the elements of the previous films and generally were just weird and bad. So, Halloween 4 retconned the end of Halloween 2, and has both Michael and Dr. Loomis surviving the fire at Haddonfield Hospital at the end of that movie. Loomis then keeps a hawkish watch over the catatonic Myers until several years later he escapes during a transfer and begins killing his way back to Haddonfield in an attempt to murder his niece, the last surviving member of his bloodline. Loomis pursues, waving his gun at everyone and everything and decrying Michael as pure evil while trying to get the Haddonfield police to locate Jamie Lloyd and take her into protective custody. Michael kills a bunch of people, Jamie and her adoptive sister always manage to escape somehow, etc., etc. You can pretty much predict how it all goes. At the end, the state police corner Michael and just unload on him in a hail of gunfire, and he falls down a mine shaft. Then, at the very end of the movie, out of nowhere, uh, Jamie stabs her adoptive mom in a repeat of Michael's actions as a child. It just makes, I cannot stress this enough, it makes no sense. Uh, basically, they're trying to say that evil is genetic or something. Like, it, do, it just does not follow. If it's possible, Halloween 5 is even worse than that one. So, a year later, Jamie has been institutionalized and rendered unable to speak. She keeps uh, having panic attacks and flashes of Michael's movements and actions. She finds that she's somehow, like, um, uh, psychically connected to him and seeing what he's seeing. So Michael, at the end of the previous film, ends up surviving from falling down the mineshaft, and he crawls out to a river, and then he's floated downstream and discovered by an unhoused person living in a shack by the riverfront. This man then nurses Michael back to health over the course of a year before being uh, killed for his kindness by Michael when he wakes up. Loomis becomes suspicious of Jamie's agitation and panic attacks and surmises that there's a psychic link of some kind between her and Michael. He then heads to Haddonfield, trusty gun in hand. Michael hunts down and kills Jamie's adopted sister, and then starts going after the sister's friends. He finds a car pretty early on, and spends a really weird amount of time in that movie behind the wheel chasing people around with a car. You know it's not a good movie when your uh, primary killer is just can't even be bothered to get out on foot after people. Eventually, Loomis and the cops use Jamie as bait, which seems really uh, unethical, to lure Michael back to his childhood home in order to capture him. Predictably, a bunch of people die in the process, but at the end of the movie, they end up arresting Michael and throwing him in a cell. So he's just sitting in a cell with his mask on, and they're like, we got him. And then there's this weird subplot that's um, hinted at throughout the movie with this, this man in black guy which you never see his face, showing up in various places around town. And so at the very end of the movie, out of nowhere, this stranger launches an assault on the police station and busts Michael out, and he's just gone. The end. The script for Halloween 5, by the way, was not finished at the time that they started filming. The whole thing was rushed into production, and it shows. But that's not all. I'd forgotten that there was like a, a sixth movie because they don't actually call it Halloween 6. So 
Six years later, in 1995, the trilogy concludes with Halloween, The Curse of Michael Myers. And this one is also Paul Rudd's debut. The movie expands on the occult supernatural elements that were hinted at in the previous movie and continues its storyline, which just, like I mentioned, abruptly ends without any kind of resolution. So, according to this movie, the man in black who freed Michael at the end of Halloween 5 was the, is the leader of a cult that worships the pagan deity Thorn. And not only did he take Michael with him for the cult, but at the same time he kidnaps Jamie at the end of the last film and imprisons her. So, this is now years later, Jamie's an adult, she's still a prisoner of the cult, and she's pregnant with a baby that the cult plans to use for some dark purpose, and they never explain who the father is. It's best not to think about it. And the cult plans to use this baby for some dark purpose as soon as she gives birth to it. So she does, and then she ends up escaping with the child. Michael is then sent after her because he's under the cult's control in some fashion that's never really explained. And he manages to catch up to Jamie and actually kills her, although not before she's safely able to hide her baby from discovery. Uh, before her death, Jamie's also able to call into a shock jock radio show and broadcast a plea for help from Dr. Loomis. This message is heard by Tommy, which is the kid that Lori babysat in the first movie. I know if this is all getting complicated, but like it, it, it is complicated. And he's now an adult and he's playing the part of a conspiracy theorist regarding Myers and the druidic pagan activities, basically our explanation character for all this weird crap. Um, by coincidence, he also lives across the street from the Myers house, which is where Lori's adopted relatives now live. So the focus has now shifted to Lori's cousin, her adopted cousin, and that woman's young son, Danny. And for some reason, it turns out that the cult is really interested in Danny, and they're eager to somehow turn him into the next Michael, because the kid's a little weird, I guess. So Tommy manages to locate and rescue Jamie's baby, and then helps Lori's cousin to protect herself and Danny from Michael. They end up running into Loomis, who's been looking for them, and then everyone gets captured by the cult. Uh, from there, they try to escape. Michael snaps and starts killing everyone, including the cult members. And then the movie just ends abruptly again without any real resolution. So those are the three Thorn Jamie Halloweens that followed three. And they were pretty awful movies, to be completely honest with you. Making Michael overtly supernatural and then rehashing the same content from previous movies was just unimaginative, dull storytelling. The franchise was clearly running on fumes by this point. I suspect that the decision to incorporate all the cult stuff, by the way, probably had its roots in the satanic panic of the early 90s. Fear of demonic occult groups was all the rage back then. Sadly, uh, Part 6, Curse of Michael Myers, that was also the last movie with Donald Pleasance, which was the actor that portrayed Loomis in all the movies up till that point. And that actor actually ended up dying several months before the film premiered, and they've got an in-memoriam um, tagline, which I guess is nice of them. And so at this point, it's 1995, the Halloween franchise has seemingly reached a complete dead end. What's there left to say or do? that won't produce diminishing returns. Nobody liked the last movie. Critical reception to all of the previous several films was just awful. So they flailed about trying to figure out what are they going to do. Um, there were multiple abandoned treatments that were written for a seventh movie that followed the previous ones, some that involved occult nonsense, 
others placing Michael in different scenarios, like uh, a woman's boarding school. Nothing really seemed to work. So, the franchise attempted a reset, which ends up being the first of a couple of branching alternate timelines. Here's where it gets really weird. So, I'm talking about Halloween H2O, uh, Halloween 20 years later, in 1998. So, Jamie Lee Curtis actually returns for this one, because... She was interested in creating a movie that would explore Laurie Strode's trauma from surviving the first two Halloween films 20 years before. She kind of masterminded a lot of the, it sounds like, a lot of the concept behind this one, although they ended up doing things that she didn't agree with. She initially had hoped to get the band back together and have Carpenter direct, and reportedly he was prepared to do that, but then contract negotiations fell through and the project was made without him. So... In uh, sort of a nod to the fourth movie, Laurie fakes her death in a car accident and then was now teaching at a preparatory school in California where her son, played by Josh Hartnett, another debut. Also, Joseph Gordon-Levitt has his debut in this movie. It's just like, yeah, a lot of debuts. So her son attends this school that she teaches at. In the years since the first films, uh, Laurie has become an alcoholic and her paranoia and fear seem to be putting a strain on the relationship with her son. Then Michael inexplicably resurfaces in Illinois and learns of Lori's location and begins on a multi-state road trip to hunt her down. Lori, her son, some of his friends, and LL Cool J, for some reason, all find themselves under attack in an otherwise deserted campus over a holiday weekend when Myers shows up and starts dropping bodies. Lori, however, fights back. She manages to stick a knife in Michael's chest, and then at the climax of the movie, she hijacks an ambulance with Michael in the back and drives out to the middle of nowhere and chops his head off. It's largely a return to form for the franchise, although, to be completely honest, when I rewatched this one, I didn't feel like it was quite as strong a movie as I remembered having seen initially. In comparison to movies 4 through 6, though, it's brilliant. I think that exploring Lori's trauma was a really great call. I wish they would have gone further with it like Curtis had wanted. She initially wanted a much more bleak, kind of personal take on it, which I think they ended up doing with the recent trilogy more. But they didn't want to go as far as she wanted to go. You know how uh, periodically there are these trends, by the way, where multiple movies all get released around the same time with the same type of material? I, I just thought of this. So, like, what I'm talking about is like Armageddon, Deep Impact, stuff like that, that all just kind of come out and there's something in the air. They're just like, let's make two asteroid movies. There was clearly something going on in 1998, I think, with regards to movies that focused on campus or school life as a backdrop. Like just off the top of my head, I can think of The Faculty, Wild Things, Dead Man on Campus. I know there are others. I don't really know what to make of it. It's just an interesting observation I wanted to mention. So... Halloween H2O was extremely successful. It was the highest-grossing Halloween movie until the 2018 film, but more on that one later. So, they killed Michael, though. Chopped his head off. What do you even do after that? Well, it turns out that that was a fake-out. There was actually some kind of contractual clause that ACAD put into the movie that mandated that Michael couldn't actually be killed. It, it almost uh, ended Jamie Lee Curtis's involvement with Halloween H2O over that fact, because she, she really wanted it to be Laurie gets her revenge, the end. And the Akads were like, no, 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 you can't actually kill Michael. And so they sort of reached a agreement, I guess, where they're like, okay, you can chop his head off, but 
it turns out that's not actually him. So they filmed some pickup scenes for the sequel around the same time that showed that actually Michael had swapped places with a paramedic and it was that guy that Laurie beheaded at the end of the previous movie. So then four years later in 2002, Halloween Resurrection was released. Curtis returned for the opening sequence where Michael manages to actually kill Laurie Strode because I think Curtis was done with the franchise by that point. She was basically like, okay, you're going to bring him back, just kill my character off, do it. And the remainder of that movie after that has to do with an internet show that's broadcast from the Myers house where a group of people are tasked with exploring the building and finding evidence that might explain Michael's turn towards violence as a child. Michael, predictably, returns to the house and starts killing people off, at which point the producer Busta Rhymes dropkicks Michael through a window and helps to set him on fire. I'm serious, that actually happens in that movie. It's admittedly trying to update the horror genre for the digital age, I think. Some of the ideas are kind of interesting, like how the internet gives average people a platform to try and become famous, and the vapid narcissism it enables. Remember, this was 2002, pre-YouTube. It's kind of pioneering, I guess. Like, filming yourself and putting it on the internet wasn't a thing as much. It's really dated, though. It's very embarrassingly of its time. It's And it's really not a good movie. It's Currently, if you look it up on Rotten Tomatoes, it's sitting at a 10%. 10. And at this point, Halloween had hit another dead end. Like, what do you do? You killed off Laurie Strode... The movie, the last movie flopped. What are you going to do with it? So at this point, a number of directions for the sequel were tossed about. The year after Halloween Resurrection, Freddy vs. Jason came out in 2003. And so this actually gave rise to a number of discussions about different ways a crossover could be made between the Halloween and Hellraiser franchises, of all things. Because they were like, well, these guys did it. Why don't we do it with our thing? And eventually they were shot down. But there were multiple like script concepts tossed about. Instead, what they ended up doing was made the decision to approach House of a Thousand Corpses and the Devil's Rejects director Rob Zombie to mastermind a new take on Halloween. Zombie was a fan of the series and leapt at the chance to direct a Halloween movie, but he wanted to make sure that Carpenter gave his blessing uh, before he signed on, which apparently Carpenter gave. He told Zombie, go make the movie your own, which he did. So this led to a second reboot of Halloween, which is a direct remake of the 1978 original that would adapt a number of elements, update them, while also taking the opportunity to flesh out a lot more of the backstory and the inner life of Michael Myers. I rather actually like Halloween 2007, so basically it tells the same story, unsurprisingly, but it's also a lot more visceral with a harder edge. I've seen it described as embracing grindhouse brutality, which I think is pretty spot on. The casting choices were solid. I heartily approve of Malcolm McDowell inheriting the Dr. Loomis role. And for the most part, I think the additions to Michael's backstory give the right amount of flavor without over-explaining too much. The same can't be said for the sequel that Zombie followed up the first movie with, Halloween 2 in 2009. It wasn't nearly as good. So it's a remake of the original Halloween 2 from 1981. For one thing, the plot is an overstuffed mess. It inserts a lot of heavy-handed backstory and imagery surrounding Michael and a pale horse of death. I don't know. It, it, It didn't work. So it picks up a year after the previous movie and attempts to link the psychological issues of Laurie and Michael 
And it actually ends up with Laurie stabbing Michael to death and then putting on his mask. Another one of these, like, are you trying to say that evil is genetic? What the hell? It was weird and pretentious in a lot of ways, I remember. Zombie then declined to return for a planned sequel. They were going to make something called Halloween 3D. And then the entire franchise got shelved for nearly a decade. Which brings us to the third reset or reboot if you're keeping score. Dimension Films lost the rights to the franchise and a new team at Bloomhouse took over. These are the people that did the Paranormal Activity movies. John Carpenter was quickly brought back on board to oversee the new film, which ended up retconning out all the previous sequels after the first Halloween. So, according to the new trilogy, it's Halloween 1978, then Halloween 2018, and the other two movies. So, the movie, Halloween 2018, and it don't you love how not confusing at all it is with three movies in the franchise all named Halloween? Yeah. Um, so Halloween 2018 takes place 40 years after the original film, as Laurie Strode has become a recluse, preparing herself for the day that Michael inevitably escapes from prison. She's like a prepper. Oh yeah, by the way, at the end of the first movie, they're saying that Michael got arrested and then locked away for 40 years, apparently. So, it's 40 years later, Laurie has raised a daughter who's now somewhat estranged from her, and that daughter has a daughter, so Laurie has a granddaughter. During a prison transfer... Michael's psychiatrist assists in his escape, at which point he dons the famous mask once again and starts killing just everything in sight. Since this sequel disregards everything besides the original movie, Laurie and Michael aren't even... they're not related, that's not a plot point. Laurie's trauma from the first movie has led her to prepare for this eventuality, and when Michael is inevitably led onto her property by the psychiatrist, she defends herself and her family in a number of kind of Home Alone-esque ways, and eventually they manage to contain Michael in an underground shelter beneath the house and set the entire building on fire, presumably incinerating Michael. This movie gets everything right in a number, well, almost everything right in a number of ways. It's genuinely tense and scary, for one thing. It's expertly shot. It plays up the contrast between elements in the foreground and the background, which was something that Carpenter did masterfully in the 1978 original that later entries didn't really do, where the tension would be between the victim and the foreground, and then you you just see freaky shit happening in the background with Michael stalking around, and you're like, no, no, turn around. Um, For some reason, none of the other movies really try doing that too much. This movie brought it back, and they did it expertly. It also, like I said, eliminates the whole Laurie Michael as siblings plotline, and I think it's a smart move. As I said way back in the beginning, Michael is much scarier when he seems to have no motivation for his actions beyond just this predatory desire to kill. It wasn't the first movie that considered the trauma that Laurie experienced by the 1978 original and the effect that it would have on her life and the lives around her. As I mentioned, Halloween H2O was sort of about that. But this one handled it pretty well. The movie, by the way, was a bona fide hit. It made more money at the box office than any of the other Halloween films and was widely praised by critics. So the plan was originally for two movies to be shot back-to-back at the same time, Halloween 2018 and a sequel, but the production team sort of walked that back and wanted to wait and see how the first film was received. So because it was a massive success, they immediately went into pre-production on a sequel, which came out in 2021. It got delayed a year by COVID. And that sequel was called Halloween Kills. 
So Halloween Kills picks up immediately following the previous movie, as the fire department rushes to the scene and puts out the fire that's engulfing Laurie Strode's property. This provides the needed opportunity for Michael to escape the basement room that he was trapped in and go on a massive killing spree. Interestingly, Lori's mostly out of commission for this one. She's recovering in a hospital from her injuries. Instead, the focus is largely on her daughter Karen and granddaughter Allison, both of which are eager for payback against Michael for killing Karen's husband and Allison's father in the last movie. A number of returning actors from the 1978 original play a role in this one, including Loomis's nurse and the two children that Lori and a friend were babysitting who are now grown adults. The movie tries to show how the legacy of terror left by Michael has shaped the residents of Haddonfield, and they begin to organize uh, vigilante units to patrol the streets looking for Myers and exact mob justice. It examines how mob mentality is itself a horrifying thing and how it can drive people to make disastrous choices. None of these efforts work, by the way, clearly. Michael is even cornered a couple times by like 20 people and then just kills all of them with his superhuman combat skills. Myers leaves just a trail of death from Laurie's compound all the way back to his childhood home. And then at the end of the movie, he surprises Karen, Laurie's daughter, and kills her. There's a lot of ideas in this movie. I think they mostly work. Taken together, I think the previous film and this one tell a satisfying story, which is weird to say about a movie where a guy murders a bunch of people that it's satisfying, but there you are. Critics didn't really agree with my assessment, though. To say that reviews were mixed about Halloween Kills is probably the kindest way to put it. Many felt that the mob mentality commentary was a little too topical and disjointed, and that the movie was a sort of a rote gore fest. Additionally, and this is back to me speaking for myself, that last-minute shocker of Michael popping up and killing Karen felt unearned. It was dumb. And again, if I'm being honest, some of the characters in Halloween Kills do act like idiots, which is never a good look. All of this leads us to the next film, and ostensibly the main topic for this episode, the newly released Halloween Ends. So as of this recording, the movie's been out about two days, so I'm not going to get as thoroughly into it as the other ones that I talked about. I want, if if you intend to go see it, go see it. So this movie was put into pre-production at the same time as Halloween Kills, and it's intended to finish out this particular sequel trilogy. What I will say about it is that it's set four years after the events of the last two movies, and it's once more about Lori and her granddaughter Allison, who are trying to heal while living in a community that for some reason holds them partially responsible for Myers' rampage. It's weird. It's also heavily, perhaps primarily, about this new character, Corey, and how the aftermath of the tragedy in Haddonfield has rippling effects throughout the community that goes on to ruin lives, and then more lives are ruined in turn by that. Corey is marked by this like brutal accident at the start of the film that occurred a year after Michael's attack, has nothing to do with him directly and then through a series of chance encounters is drawn into the world of Laurie, Allison, and Michael. The movie builds towards a conclusion where Laurie is inevitably attacked by Michael and has to end his reign of terror once and for all, which he does. This was a really weird movie. I'm going to be honest with you. It's not what I was expecting at all. For instance, Michael is barely in it. He doesn't really even show up until well into the movie. It 
attempts to go beyond the themes of Halloween kills and examines how the mistreatment of individuals at the hands of a community can drive them to become monsters in response. It also posits that evil exists within all of us and that it can be awakened by the right spark. It's dealing with some big themes, I think, but I didn't feel that the movie was really very good. Uh, A lot of the characterization, for instance, feels ridiculous, and a number of the relationships, like the one between Allison and Corey, they're not believable. They just don't make any sense. And then also the climax of the movie, the inevitable final confrontation between Laurie and Michael, it just feels overindulgent and just lacks any tension. It, like I said, it's a movie that plays with big themes. To its credit, it doesn't play things safe at all. But it also fails to execute any of those big ideas properly. It, it just feels a, a bit pretentious at times. Despite the name and the actual conclusion of the movie, there's zero reason to think that this is going to be the last Halloween movie. How many times in the past, in all these sequels that I've discussed in this podcast, how many times has the series just hit a narrative dead end and been rebooted? It's going to happen, inevitably. We will see Michael Myers again. To close things out, here's a couple of factoids about the Halloween series. The first is about the origin of the iconic Myers mask. Would you believe that back in 1978, they took a Star Trek Captain Kirk mask and spray-painted it white? Because that's what they did. That's where the mask comes from. Two, Michael isn't credited in the original film as Michael Myers, um, and this is holds true for a number of sequels. Michael is credited as The Shape, presumably because regardless of his appearance, he's pure evil in the shape of a man. And that's Halloween Ends. And that's the end of this extremely long podcast on the Halloween movies. So what is there left to say about Halloween? It's an enduring series that casts a long shadow over the horror genre and slasher movies in general. I don't think it's a stretch to say that without Halloween 1978 and its sequels, without it, we probably wouldn't have gotten Jason, Freddy, or Ghostface. Or if we did, it'd be way different. Much like Michael, the Halloween franchise is a series that just keeps refusing to die, relentlessly reinventing itself in order to scare audiences decade after decade. I swear, though, I need to re-examine my approach for series like this. (laughs) Um... There's just too much, between this one and the Asimov podcast the last time, there's just too much material to cover, and it just sort of gets exhausting. I mean, I just went through 13 Halloween movies. You deserve an award if you stuck with me this long. It's a lot. Although, in the context of Halloween Ends, which is an overly long movie with a meandering, half-baked plot, I'd say thematically, this podcast kind of fits in with that. What else is there to say? Uh, Next week, I'll be talking about the recently concluded first season of Amazon's The Rings of Power. We're going to shake off the horror thing and delve in some fantasy a little bit. How's that sound? See you next time. (laughs) 